The scripture for this morning is John chapter 3, as we continue through the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, if you would open your Bibles please. Uh, For the visitors, we're going through the Gospel of John in the mornings, and then we go through the book of Deuteronomy in the evenings. We have evening services every Sunday evening, except for the very last Sunday of the month, and we usually have home group. But tonight our home group is the Reformation celebration. So we'll be in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 3. Interesting, when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're very, they're very similar in many ways. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of them, and 75% of Mark you can find in Matthew or Luke. Additionally, 25% of Matthew and Luke are are very similar as well. So one theory is that Matthew, that Mark was written first, and Mark, we think, was written by Peter. Mark was his, his assistant, if you will. So we have the account of Peter, and this was the first gospel, and it was kind of the baseline. And then again, maybe... Um, Matthew used Mark when he wrote his gospel and just used it as a, as a template and added a little bit. And then, then Luke used Matthew and Mark as the baseline for his gospel account. But the three synoptics are very similar. That's the takeaway. John, by a contrast, is almost completely different. 90% of what you see in John is new material. 90%. Now, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all wonderful blessings. It's not that anyone is, is to be favored over another. It's all God's Word, and these Gospels all have a special place and a special view of the glory of Jesus in His ministry. But the Apostle John wrote this, this Gospel after the synoptics, and it seems that he had read them. And he's writing kind of to fill in, to fill in things that he thought were important, things that he thinks is helpful to understand the ministry of Jesus from his perspective. And in chapters 2 through 4, which we're going through now, is no exception. Verse 24 in this chapter tells us what has taken place in chapters 2 through 4 happened before John the Baptist was put into prison. So this is significant because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start the ministry accounts of Jesus after John is in prison. And John, the Apostle, is after John the Baptist is put in prison. So the Apostle John is saying, I think there's some things that happened before that that I would like you to know about. And this is what we have here. And it's a wonderful blessing to be able to see that. So these first chapters of John highlight Jesus' ministry before the arrest of John the Baptist. And it's a special special insight into things that the synoptics actually do not cover. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36 is the text. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It's perfect, it's inerrant, and it is truth. Beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Scriptures. We thank you that you've given us your Word, the Word of God, and it's living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates all the way to our souls. But more than the Word of God, You've given us Jesus, the Word, sent from heaven to show us the Father. We are blessed beyond measure. We have Bibles in our hands. We have Bibles in every home. And now we are studying the Scriptures and we pray that You would open our eyes to see the truth that contained therein. And that You would bless this preaching of Your Word. Touch our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we conclude John chapter 3, what you're seeing really is John showing four separate instances of Jesus' supremacy over Judaism. He's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets and all the ceremonial worship that was so important to the Jews. First, we saw that He turned water into wine. He took the jars that were used for cleansing, for purification, filled with water, and he, he filled them with new wine. Ceremonial cleansing only pointed to the cleansing that we have in Christ. And then he went to the temple. It's the second account. And he, he threw out the money changers. He turned over the tables. And when they challenged him, he said, if you destroy this temple... I'll pick it back up in three days. I'll rebuild it in three days. Talking about his own body. His point is that there's a time when you will no longer come to this temple to worship, but those who worship will come to me and worship in spirit and in truth. Thirdly, we saw the conversation with Nicodemus, this righteous man under the law. And he says, you must be born again. You must believe in the one who is lifted up. He alone is the object of our faith and our worship. 
And that's Jesus. And now in verses 22 through 26, which we have just read, we see that Jesus surpasses all of the prophets, even John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest of the prophets. So the title of this message is, He must increase, but I must decrease. This is, this is what John the Baptist told his disciples. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I'll make three points as we go through this text. First, we'll talk about the team of God, the family of God. We're all on one team. Secondly, we'll see that truly Jesus must increase and truly we must decrease as John the Baptist did. Thirdly, we'll look at why, and that's because Jesus is absolutely unique. He's different. He's set apart. He's holy. It's interesting that Jesus was doing the same type of ministry that John the Baptist was doing. And John the Baptist's disciples noticed that more and more people were going over to Jesus. And John the Baptist corrected their maybe their bitter rebuke. He corrected their, their unright attitudes by reminding them that they have one mission. And it's all about Jesus. I'm reminded that in combat situations, it's important for the military to have one unified chain of command. And it might surprise you that even in World War II, we didn't have a unified chain of command. We tried, but the services were all, there was an inter-service rivalry. The Navy often didn't give full support or wholehearted support to the Army and vice versa. Saw this especially in the Pacific. That's the reason why the Navy and the Marine Corps basically took the Pacific as their own mission and the army took Europe. They just could not get along. All the way up until the hostage crisis. Remember when Jimmy Carter was president, there were hostages in Iran. We actually tried to rescue those hostages, but it was a, a total disaster. Why? Because the services could not get along. There was not one unified chain of command. And that event actually actually was the impetus to actually start taking seriously the notion that we need one boss. When we accomplish any mission, we have one chain of command. Additionally, we have one mission statement. There's one statement that unifies all that we do. And when the commander issues his guidance, that guidance is leveraged by every commander below him. When someone, some other general says, you have to do this, and he can say no. This is our boss's statement. This is his guidance. This is what I have to do. So John the Baptist is feeling some of this same pressure. His own disciples are saying, hey, Jesus is getting more and more people to follow Him. And John the Baptist actually could have started pulling glory to himself. He could, he could have started pulling attention to himself because we don't see this because John the Baptist plays a small, a small role in our Scriptures. But at this time, John the Baptist was the prophet. He was more popular than Jesus up until maybe this moment. He was the most popular religious figure in all of the land. And now for the first time, something is changing. And John the Baptist, rather than pulling glory to himself, he pushes the glory to Christ. 
he reminds his disciples that there's one team. There's one church. So in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples, we see, go into the Judean countryside. This is a good translation. They go into the Judean countryside. They left Jerusalem. They left the Passover. They're still in Judea, but they go into the countryside. I talked about the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, picking up after John the Baptist is already in prison. Well, Jesus' ministry at that time is in Galilee. So John, the apostle, is saying, well, there's more that happened before that, and it's in Judea, so we're talking about that at this time. The Judean countryside was where this event happened. We see that John was baptizing. We read that Jesus and His disciples are baptizing. Actually, chapter 4, verse 1 specifies that it wasn't Jesus Himself who was doing the baptizing, but it was His disciples. They were baptizing in His name, if you will. This wasn't the New Testament baptism either. This was the baptism of John. It was a baptism of repentance. Not the, the baptism given by Christ to the church. But regardless, the same kind of ministry is happening. And a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Again, they're talking about Jewish religious issues. It seems that the discussion is related to the continuing relevance of John the Baptist's ministry. And the disciples are holding on. They're all going over to Jesus, they said. John, our baptizer, you have to tell us. How do we counter this, this new movement? There seems to be some resentment. And we know this because of John's response to them. His response is a correction. Would John the Baptist also be offended that Jesus was more popular? No. His answer makes it clear. No. These were two different groups pro proclaiming the truth about Christ. One was closer to, the, to Jesus, i.e. with Jesus. So more pure just because of their proximity to Jesus. But they were both proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist had said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's attitude should be ours as well. Yes, we're Presbyterians. We love the doctrine of our church. We want the most pure teaching and doctrine that we can have. But in so much as another church preaches the true gospel, they're our brothers. Augustine addressed this way back in the early history of the church in the 400s. He, he taught that in essentials, we should have unity. Essentials meaning the gospel. The things that we recited together in the Nicene Creed, there should be unity. If someone says they don't believe that Jesus came of the Virgin Mary, I'm sorry, I can't have fellowship with you. Christian fellowship is not possible. I'll be your friend. I'll love you. But we're not going to have Christian fellowship. That's an essential. That Christ came as a man. That's essential. So in essentials, there's unity. In non-essentials, there's liberty. Non-essentials, there's liberty. We see this most strikingly with our Reformed Baptist brothers. We have a different view of baptism, but we believe the Gospel. Yes, it's important, but it's non-essential for fellowship. 
And in all things we have charity. In all things we show love. It's important that you know why we even recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the, the creeds from Scripture. Certainly they're summarizing essential doctrine for the Christian faith. It's not tradition that we do. It's a reminder for each of us. These are the essentials. These are the essentials for our own faith. And it's also for this reason that we cannot partner with false religions no matter how closely they try to look like Christians. Mormons, Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses. We just don't partner with them. They, they need the Gospel. If you get the Gospel wrong, nothing else is right. But John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, we are all about Jesus. We're not about me. We're all about Jesus. We're on His team. He's our commander. And He begins to teach them. Verse 27, He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's acknowledging God's sovereignty behind all earthly ministry, behind all earthly efforts for God. Whether you're in ministry or you're serving as a lay leader in some way, God is sovereign over all that is done. And anything that's accomplished is only because God has given it to you to do. I've often told people during the newcomers class, the amount, you know, why don't we have like other churches in the area, some, some wonderful marketing, like get some t-shirts made or bumper stickers for our cars. The number of people that come to our church is none of my business. I'm called to be faithful. If there's 50, if there's one, well, I was going to say if my wife, but she could leave too. If there's just nobody here, I'm going to be faithful. We're called to be faithful because whatever is given to us in this church is given by God. Whatever ministry, failure, success, as you see it from an earthly perspective, it's from God. So John the Baptist is rebuking them for their jealousy and he's saying, look, Whatever I've accomplished, it's from Jesus. It's from God. It's given from above. And you can't do anything unless it's given from above. Not even one thing, he says. A person cannot receive even one thing. Again, talking about spiritual things, about, about ministry. This is the context. You say, well, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous to share with somebody. You shouldn't be. When you're talking to your neighbors, when you're talking to your family, your friends, you should be confident. Because if they're going to hear anything good, it's from God. You have to open your mouth and start talking. That's your job. Talk about Jesus. God's job is to change hearts, not yours. And although John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus had a much greater role in redemptive history, didn't He? He saved the world. John the Baptist just introduced him. So we need to remember that our impact in this spiritual battle, in this wilderness journey, in our individual roles, whatever they may be, is all in God's hands. You're just called to be faithful. Moms and dads, just be faithful. Children, just be faithful to God. Grandmas, be faithful. Retirees, shut-ins, all of us. We just need to be faithful. 
That reminds me, there was a person who didn't have a bulletin one morning, and they heard Jerry pray for the shut-ins and listed their names and told me later, that family, the shut-ins, they sound so sweet. I'd like to meet them. Who are the shut-ins? I thought it was a last name. And they are sweet. Regardless, whatever place God has placed you in today, you need to be faithful. Be faithful. Because whatever you've received is given from above. It's given from God. In other words, His business is His business. Your business is your business. And that's be faithful to God. John continues in verse 28, You yourselves bear witness that I said, he's reminding them of what he's preached, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. He was unwavering in his declaration that he was not the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Lamb of God. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he was also the first of the New Testament preachers. He was this, he was this joining of the two epochs in redemptive history. Of course, Jesus was the crucible on, on which it all kind of balances. But John introduces him, and again, he had a special transitional role. And this work that was given him was from heaven. He was not the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the one we should all serve. And he tells his apostles, men, get behind Jesus. He's our commander. He's the Lamb of God. Second point. He tells them that Jesus must increase, but He must decrease. He must increase, but John the Baptist must decrease. This is hard for all humans. We're born in sin. We're born thinking that we are God. That we're always right. That we're always good. That our motives are always pure. Mark Twain said that in the beginning God made man in His own image and man has been returning the favor ever since. This is true. Truly, God must increase. This principle is embodied in the idea of, of service before self. The military, most big corporations are trying to embody this, this theme that service to this company, to this country, must come before yourself. Even in football teams, you see these shirts that say, team, really big, and then me, really small. Right? It's this idea that, that you decrease for, this, for the good of the community, for the good of the team. Well, John the Baptist is, is the first to say this. And he said, Jesus must increase. It should be big Jesus and little me for all of us. I guess if we ever get a t-shirt, that's what it's going to be. Big Jesus, little me. That's the Christian life. And he explains why in verse 29. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the bride being the church or the faithful in any age, the bridegroom being Christ, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist is saying, I'm the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He's using this, this metaphor of weddings again to explain something about what's going on in the coming of Jesus. The bridegroom is coming for his people. He's come. 
And John the Baptist as the best man, his whole job, this is again Middle Eastern culture, it's Eastern um, first century culture, the best man's job was to prepare all the stuff, to get it all ready. So you get the food ready, you get the feast ready, you get the drink ready, you get everything ready, so that when the best, when the bridegroom came for the bride, the bridegroom had it all, the bridegroom's best man had it all set. And as soon as they were together, and as soon as he hears them together, he rejoices. He knows his work is done. His joy is complete. So he's leaning heavily on this metaphor and he's saying, I'm the best man. That's who I am. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. I'm the best man. I'm introducing the bridegroom. I'm introducing the groom to the bride. And now that they're introduced, my joy is complete. I've done my job. I'm happy. My labors have paid off. Of course, he was. it was prophesied that he would do this. Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the highway for our God. This is what John the Baptist has done. He's been faithful to do this. And he's still doing it with his own disciples. He's saying Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. I'm just the best man. He's reminding his disciples that his mission was not to grow his ministry in some way. It was to point to Christ. And every earthly ministry since then that's faithful to Jesus has the same mentality. Be faithful to Jesus. Exalt the name of Jesus. And he summarizes the whole argument in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's just a beautiful statement of submission to Jesus. Of submission to God. John the Baptist knows his role. He's a slave of God. And he does what his Master tells him. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. That was it. And it was an important role, certainly. He's the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. But he rightly fades into the background after this. We don't hear much about him until his death in the other Gospels. Well, certainly his attitude should be all of our attitudes, all of us who love Jesus. Truly, Jesus must increase and truly we must decrease. We are all, each one, gifted to serve Jesus in some way to serve the church in some way. When you become a member of Meadow Creek, it's not so that you can just sit in the pew and soak up the Word of God. God has brought you here for a reason. To bless the body of Christ in some way. You've been gifted to do something. And yet it's all for Jesus. You decrease and He increases. We're all tempted to put our own, our own efforts. We're all tempted to just reverse that. I must increase and Jesus must decrease. That's our temptation. That's the temptation of man. To put our own glory or wealth or tradition or reputation or comfort or fame or whatever it is, to put it before Christ. I mean, secretly, we, we may not even see it happening in the secret part of our heart that we are really trying to increase our own kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of God. That's why I still commend to you praying through the Lord's Prayer daily. And I'm not just saying recite it. I mean pause and pray through each line. Because one of the things you do again and again 
is you say, let your kingdom come. And that's when I say, Lord, not my kingdom, not my soul, not my, I don't want to, to be exalted. I want your kingdom to come. The more you understand this, the more selflessly you will serve Jesus. You will serve the church. You will see Jesus increasing and your own desires decreasing. You'll begin looking more and more like the Apostle Paul and the other apostles who sacrificed everything to serve Jesus. The majesty of Jesus being your focus. You need to remember whether you're serving the church or serving and working in the world, that you are serving Christ. You've been bought with a price. Everything you do, you do for the glory of God. And this way you see, you see Jesus increasing and you decreasing in every area of your life. Your goal is not your own happiness. Your goal is to please your Master. To please your King. We're all the king's men. We're all the king's women. In so much as you have faith in Christ, that is your role to glorify God. The very first question in the Shorter Catechism what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we're here. Jesus pulled on the same theme. Whenever he talked about following him, he said if something like this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You decrease, he increases. You have to count the cost. So why is John the Baptist so confident that this is true? Well, certainly he knew something about Jesus that his disciples did not. He knew that Jesus was worthy of honor and glory and power and majesty. And His disciples, they didn't see it yet. And this is the third point, the last point. It's the uniqueness of Jesus. I'm going to give you six ways in, in, in these last five verses that we see the uniqueness of Jesus. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. This is the first way that Jesus is unique. He's set apart. He's different from us. He comes from above. No one else came from heaven. Only Jesus. He's supreme because He is God. Jesus is God. He was a man. He was born from the Virgin Mary. And yet He was 100% God. He was 100% man. No one else is like Him. He comes from the Father as the Father's representative. Reference the prologue to John's Gospel. We said the prologue basically highlights all the themes that John's going to talk about for the rest of the Gospel. And the prologue basically is making the point that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. If there's one thing that we need to hear over and over and over again in our lives is that Jesus is Lord. And He's your shepherd. If you have faith in Him, He's also your good shepherd. Jesus, secondly, Jesus speaks as God. He speaks as God. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Verse 32, but Jesus bears witness to what He has seen and heard. Heavenly things. Verse 34, for He whom God has sent utters the words of God. Nobody else speaks the words of God like Jesus did. Prophets, preachers, pastors, since the time of Christ have tried to be faithful to preach the Word of God, but no one could do it like Jesus because Jesus was God. He exegeted the Father. He showed us the Father. John the Baptist is saying, I'm just a man. But Jesus, He is God. He's the one who has the words of God. He has a unique authority. He's God Himself speaking the Word of God. It's not to say that the rest of your Bible is not inspired. It's all equally inspired. It's all the Word of God. But when Jesus was on earth, John the Baptist is saying, no one is going to preach like this guy. Go to Jesus. He speaks about heavenly things. He's God. So He comes from above. He speaks the words of God. Thirdly, Jesus is sovereign. He's above all. He's sovereign. He who comes from heaven is above all. This explains, and he knew this, this explains his authority as you read the Gospels. One thing you should notice is he doesn't act like we would act. He always acts with absolute authority in whatever he's doing. Paul in Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. Jesus is Lord. In Hebrews 1, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus is Lord. He's above all. So He comes from above. He speaks the words of God. John the Baptist says He's above all. He's sovereign. Verse 33, Jesus is the truth. He's God's truth. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to thing to this, that God is true. So this is special. John the Baptist, or maybe the Apostle John, whoever said these words, he doesn't say that Jesus is true. He could have. But he said that in the person of Jesus, we see that God is true. God is true. He's the ultimate authority of truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Everything He speaks, everything He does is true. When you read the Scriptures, this is all truth. This is truth. You wonder why you're struggling to remember that you're a child of God, that God is sovereign in your life, that all things happen for your good and His glory. You're wondering why you're struggling to remember these truths. It's because you're not spending time in the Word of God. Every day. And you should be. It's how your mind is transformed by the Spirit. To remember the truth. 
God is true and that is seen in Jesus. In John 17, Jesus said, I have given them words that you gave me. This is his high priestly prayer. He's talking about the apostles and all the church. I've given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You see what Jesus says, God says. What Jesus does, God does. What Jesus feels, God feels. Whoever Jesus condemns, God condemns. Whoever Jesus accepts, God accepts. Jesus speaks the Word of God and there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. So we see He comes from above. He speaks the Word of God. He's sovereign God. He speaks truth. He's God's truth. Fifthly, we see that Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Verse 34, He gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus. Jesus has the Spirit without measure. This Trinitarian verse, I think we should not overlook. You should never overlook any verse of Scripture. But when you see the Trinity in Scripture, that's a special, wonderful thing. God sent Jesus, the Son, and He gives Jesus, the man, Spirit without measure. Now certainly in the divine nature of Jesus, He's one, eternally one, infinitely one with the Spirit and the Father. And in His human nature, naturally, He possesses the Spirit without measure. John 16, verse 13. Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you in all truth. You see, the Spirit was coming to us as well. In a greater way than was ever seen in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Talking of the Spirit. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all for the church. He speaks because He has the Spirit without measure. He speaks perfect truth. And then He declares that the Spirit would be in us as well so that we could understand truth. The Spirit will take whatever Christ said and declare it to your own soul. Last unique thing we see about Christ here is that He is especially beloved by the Father. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. I remember when my children were young, I was talking about this uh, recently, they could come to me with almost anything and I, I was just overflowing in a desire to, to help them, to comfort them. I remember when we lived in Alaska, one of my daughters came and she was holding a a rock, and she said, Daddy, look at the little rock I found. It's so neat. It was a moose pellet. I was like, oh, this is so precious, honey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just so happy that she found this rock, which I quickly threw away. Daddy, so-and-so just hurt my feelings. She said this. Honey, come here. Let me, let me help you. Let me pray for you. Daddy, look what I did. Look at this thing that I created. Look at this picture that I drew. 
Come here, honey, let me see that. I'm so proud of you. You see, the love I had for my children, still have for my children, was unlike anything else that I'd ever imagined before. And I'm a wicked man, and if I can love my kids in this small way, how much more does our Heavenly Father love His own Son and us, His adopted children? You see, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. The Father loved the world as well, and He sent His Son, and He's given His Son complete authority. He rules the universe and the church, but the love between the Father and the Son is something that we will never be able to fathom. It's the bedrock of our salvation. We see this in John 17, where Jesus says again in this prayer, O righteous Father, even the world does not know You. I know You. And these know that I have, or that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which You loved Me may be in them. And I in them. So there's actually an application for us in just knowing the love of the Father for the Son. Because as amazing as this is, the love that the Father has for the Son, which is infinite, He applies to His own people. It's shocking. And Christ, His whole mission was founded upon the love of the Father. He knew that the Father loved Him. He knew that the Father sent Him to save a people that He loved and had chosen for Him. And the the bottom line is the Father's love for the Son is also His love for us. Your faith comes from God. This love of God inspired your own election, your own regeneration, is from nothing else except God's love. Why did He love you and not someone else in this saving, redemptive way? It's none of our business. We don't know. All we know is we didn't deserve it. None of us deserve the love of God at all. All of our good, deed are, good deeds are Nothing before Him. There is filthy rags. It's only because of the love of God that you have any knowledge of Jesus. That's it. But John the Baptist is telling his disciples, or the Apostle John is telling the reader, that the Father loves the Son with an infinite, wonderful love. And we should strive to understand through the Scriptures what this love is. So let's conclude with verses 32 and 36. Verse 32, he says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony. He doesn't literally mean every person who hears the gospel rejects it. But it seems that the vast majority of the people that heard it in the Jewish homeland of Israel at the time, and that hear it today all over the world, the vast majority of people reject it. And the result is that the wrath of God remains on them. But it doesn't have to be that way. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The only thing keeping you from believing in the Son right now is your own rebellion. Your own unbelief. You're called to come to the Son today. 
Whoever does not obey the Son will never see life. The wrath of God remains on him. The entire human existence is divided up to, between those who love God and serve Him and who love Satan and serve Him. That's it. People may not know they are serving Satan, but those are the only two options. The world serving Satan or being part of God's family, the church serving God. So do you want to be alive or dead? Do you want to serve God or serve Satan? I pray that you would all come to Christ. That you would all believe in the Son. Believe in His name. That He would increase and that you would decrease. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your goodness, for Your love, for Your mercy. We thank You for Your Word. We know that Your Word is powerful, that it's effective, that it will accomplish everything that You have ordained for it to accomplish. We pray that in our own hearts we would receive this Word, this good Word, that we receive it, that it would, would well up to a, to a fountain, overflowing so that others may also hear this good news and believe. Lord, may Your Word be effective in our own lives. May You be glorified this day in the preaching of Your Word. Let us practice it with our lives. Let us receive it with joy. Let us always remember the good news of Jesus Christ, the Gospel that's for us every day. In Jesus' name.